We're going to spend 10 weeks looking through this letter from Paul. It's four chapters. And I said last week, if you haven't read it before, please do go home and read it. It won't take you long to read through. And this book for us is is so timely. It's timely for the, the season that we're in as a church, but it's timely for us in the season that we're in as just a, a global community. Um, the interesting thing about this book that, that the Apostle Paul writes, it's one of the only letters that he writes that doesn't really include much rebuke. He's not really writing it to correct a church because they're doing things wrong or maybe they've, they've got some heresy going on in the church. Paul writes this letter predominantly to encourage them to encourage the believers in the city of Philippi and to encourage them specifically to grow in their maturity in Jesus Christ. As they follow Jesus, Paul is writing them to grow and to grow to be like Jesus. That's, that's our call and we are called to be his disciples and to grow in our likeness of Jesus, to be more Jesus. And can I say the reason that that is, that is good for us and, and it, it is a timely message for us is because that is exactly what our city, Liverpool, needs. Our city right now needs God's people to be his people, to be more like him. Our city needs people to, to speak about Jesus and to live like Jesus. That, that is what our city needs more than anything. That is what our streets need more than anything. God's people, God's church, living like him and speaking his truths. That's what we need, folks. That's what we need to be, Liberty Church. That is what we need to be, God's people living like him. And it's interesting, at the moment, we're seeing a bit of a cultural shift, particularly in the Western world. So, so up until recently, up until now, the, the great um, defeater or, or, or the, the reasons that people would reject Christianity predominantly would be around issues of reliability. So people would say, I, I, I don't want to believe in that. I'm not going to believe what you're saying about Jesus because... I don't believe it to be true. It was an issue of truth. And so they would use issues of science or suffering and, and come, come round to say, I, I just can't see how that can be true because of X, Y, and Z. That, that has been the great defeater for a, for a while now. But there seems to be a cultural shift going on where now the, the issue is not, is it true? The issue is, is it good? That is why people are, are, are either becoming more intrigued with the Christian faith or, or rejecting it. They are asking the question, is it good? This letter that we're reading here, folks, helps us to see and is going to help us live lives that show it is good. The Christian faith is good. It is a good life to live and not necessarily a good life as the world would see it. The world would probably say a good life to live is a life of health and wealth and prosperity. And actually, funnily enough, what you see in this letter is the complete opposite. Like Paul has the opposite of those things. He's poor, he's sick, and he's in chains as he writes it. So that isn't the, 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 the life that this book is offering. But it is offering us a good life, a life of true joy, a life of true peace, a life of real unity. And really, deep down, that is what we as humans want. We might think that we need money and health and prosperity, but actually what we really need is real joy, is peace, is unity. And the way that that comes, the Bible says, is through relationship with Jesus. It is the only way that it comes. The only way we find real joy, peace and unity with each other and with God is through Jesus Christ. And let me just give you a spoiler alert. That is, that is what this letter is about. Jesus. 
It is all about Jesus. You're going to hear about him each week as we go through this letter. It is all about Jesus. It is all about his gospel. It is all about his church. Like think of the the most uh, uh, common verses that we know from Philippians. A lot of us will know these verses off by heart. Think of chapter one, Paul saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all about Jesus. Chapter two, the the apex of the letter, the Christ hymn, where, where Paul shows just how Jesus comes in humility. Christ Jesus came as a servant. It's about Jesus. In chapter three, Paul says, I count all things of loss as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. In chapter four, I can do all things through Christ Jesus. You see how Jesus is so central to each chapter. Jesus is the thread through this whole letter. And each week we are going to see more of him. We're going to see how we can grow in maturity and grow to be more like him. And I'm so excited because I want that. And we should all want that. We should be excited to go through this letter because by the end, if we go through it prayerfully and intentionally, folks, we will be more like Jesus when we get to the end of that. Don't we want that? Do you want that, folks? Yes. So we're going to jump into it this morning. We're just going to cover two verses right at the start. But before we start it, put a finger in Philippians there and turn back to Acts chapter 16, page 924. Acts chapter 16. uh, About a year ago, Elizabeth and I bought um, a DVD called uh, The Fantastic Beasts and Something Else. Kara's name, you might know the rest of it. I can't remember. Fantastic Beasts and Something Else. It's a bit of a, a prequel to... Harry Potter, that's the right way around, isn't it? Um, and we bought this DVD. It's a two-part DVD. There's two films to it. Is it a prequel or a sequel? It's a prequel. Yeah, got that right. Um, a great films, by the way. And we sat down and we watched this film. And it was a great film. Uh, but as we're kind of watching it and we're working our way through, particularly as we got towards the end, we were like, this is like, things of the ante's upped pretty quick. Like, these characters have developed very quickly. And they seem to be, right from the start, really angry with each other, like, J.K. Rowling, I think, who wrote, wrote these books, he's like, she's a master of, of writing, but it just felt like it was a little bit like, we feel like we've missed something out. And it wasn't until we opened the disc that we realized, realized we'd watched the second disc instead of disc one, and we got it the wrong way around. But she's in, so incredible. When we watched it the other way around, it was still an amazing couple of films to watch. But what we needed was to watch it in the right order. And we're going to really help ourselves this morning by actually seeing the prequel to this letter that is written into the Philippians. The prequel to this letter that we're going to work through over the next 10 weeks is found in Acts chapter 16. Um, Acts chapter 16, the book of Acts, is a historical record of how the church grows. So, so at the end of the book of Luke, at the end of the Gospels, we see Jesus resurrect. Uh, he's been uh, uh, crucified on the cross. He, he ra- rises from the grave. And at the start of the book of Acts, we see he ascends to go and be with the Father and gives this commission to his church to go. It's the church we're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus leaves them, gives his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And, and straight away within the first couple of cha- chapters of Acts, you see the church growing. The gospel being proclaimed, the good news that yes, we are sinners, but Jesus has died to take our sins and he has prepared a place for us to be with him for all eternity. That is the gospel that's proclaimed and the church grows. And you see this guy within a few chapters, the apostle Paul, who was anti-Christ, like he was working against the church, but he gets saved. 
he's converted and he spearheads the mission to take the great commission, which is to go to all the earth from Jerusalem to Judea to all the earth, the ends of the earth, to take the gospel. Uh, Paul spearheads it. And at this point in Acts chapter 16, we get to the start of Acts chapter 16. At this point, the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea, which is modern day Samaria. And it's kind of spreading across Asia, but that's it. That's where it stopped. On your tables, if you're here this morning, you've got a little map. And this is like, if I was sitting there, I'd be, this is geek territory for me. I love maps. If you're at home, if you're watching on the screen, some of you at the back of your, my, back of your Bible will have a map. And this will probably be the only time you ever use these maps. Like, I've always wondered what they're there for, but they're there for this sermon this morning. On, on that list of maps at the back, you'll see one called Paul's second mission journey and the map that you've got in front shows you Paul's mission journey he's already been on one journey he's taken the gospel into Asia and now we're going to see where he goes next with him he's got Silas and Luke who writes this letter uh, uh, the book of Acts and they collect Timothy as well on their way they go from Jerusalem they head up through a western Turkey and I'm just going to kind of work through Acts chapter 16 for us they get to a town called Mysia and as they get to Mysia, kind of in the northwest of Turkey, they have a decision. Do we go left into Europe or do we go right further into Asia? Where are we going to take the gospel now, guys? And they come to a decision. We're going to go right. We're going to go deeper into Asia. Now, let me just remind you, the Great Commission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Asia has the, the gospel already. And these guys are at this frontier. Do we take it into Europe where we have not been before, where the gospel is not? Or do we take it into Asia? And I, I'm kind of just thinking behind the scenes here. The easy decision is to go right. The easy decision is to go further into Asia. They, they are looking towards this area called Bithynia, in, further into Turkey. And, and they say, that's where we're going to go. And it seems that they start heading in that direction. And then God stops them. God stops them and says, no, I don't want you to go that way. I want you to go that way towards Europe. God is determined, folks, to to take his gospel and to get his gospel and to take it to the ends of the earth. He wants to get into the hands of those who need to hear it. And I want us to to, just kind of sympathize with Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke for a minute. They take the easy option. And I think probably we will too. I want to encourage us this morning that we are not alone when we doubt the power of the gospel to save and we take the easy route. Paul is at this frontier and he goes for the easy route. But God stops him in his tracks and says, no, I want you to go that way. And so they head towards this northwest port, a town called Troas in Turkey. They're on the, right on the edge of Asia. And it seems like they're still not sure. They just need to get a boat and cross over the Aegean Sea into Greece and then they're into to Europe and they're not going. They're sitting there, they're waiting there and then a vision comes to Paul in verse, verse 9 of chapter 16. He sees a man on the other side of the sea in Macedonia, which is modern day Greece. And this man says to them in verse 9, come over to Macedonia and help us. They need the gospel. They need to know Jesus. And that's enough for Paul and straight away they go, they get on a boat, they cross over, they go to the port city of Neapolis in Greece. And then from there they travel on to Philippi, into the place where we find the letter that we are reading. And in verse 12 of chapter 16, Luke gives us a bit of a clue as to the importance of this city that they landed to. 
Luke says in verse 12, doesn't he, he says it was a leading city and it was a Roman colony. Now, back in the first century, a little bit of history for you. Um, the Roman Empire spread right across Europe, all the way from Scotland, or the bottom of Scotland, all the way across to, to the east of Asia and all the way down into Italy. It spread all the way across there and Rome was the centre of the empire. It was the economic, political, cultural hub of the empire. And if you walked into Rome, it felt Roman. But the rest of the empire didn't really feel like that. It's a little bit like if you think of the United Kingdom. Like, like if you walk into Wales, it's part of the UK, but it feels Welsh. Like people speak differently. They look different. Well, they don't really look differently, do they? But they, they definitely speak differently. It looks differently, at least. Same in Scotland, same in, in Northern Ireland. These places have their own kind of feeling. It was the same with the Roman Empire. Places looked like they looked. So if you're in Jerusalem, it felt kind of like Jerusalem, uh, Jewish. If you're in Turkey, it felt Turkish. Philippi was different. You walked into Philippi and it felt like Rome. It had this name, uh, literally, of Little Rome. It became a haven, you see, for retired uh, soldiers from the Roman um, army. And this will bore you a little bit, but maybe some of you might find this interesting. When Caesar, when Julius Caesar was assassinated, anyone know by who? Brutus, yes. What a name. Assassinated by Brutus. Uh, uh, the Roman armies pursued Brutus to Philippi. And it's in Philippi that Brutus and his friends were defeated. The armies had a great battle in 44 BC. They were defeated there by the general Augustus Philippensis which is where Philippi gets its name. And the, the soldiers who pursued Brutus there stayed there. They were older, so they kind of retired there. And it became a bit of a hub for other soldiers to come to. That was the place to go to retire, a little bit like the Costa Blanca in, in Spain. It was a bit of a, just a, an outpost of Rome. And if you walked into to Philippi, it felt like Rome. The same architecture, the same uh, road layout. They spoke Latin in Philippi. They dressed like Romans. Rome was also given its own kind of Roman legal status. If you lived in Philippi, even though it was in Greece, you were counted as a Roman citizen. And finally, and this is important, it was located on the Via Ignatia, which was this main trade route that spread across all the way from Rome to Asia, which meant as you lived in Philippi, you would see the world in front of you. All sorts of different people passing in front of you from different parts of the world. It was so diverse except there was no Christian witness. The gospel was not there. And so as Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke land into Greece, there's no welcome party for them there. There are almost no signs of Christian life. The whole structure of the city of Philippi stands against them. It opposes them. They would say Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord. Folks, just for a minute, I want us to think about the people that we've been praying for this week. The people that we've been praying that will come onto Alpha. The people that we've been praying that God would save. And our experience, because it is limited in some ways, and because our faith is weak in many ways, our experience and our flesh will tell us, yes, we will pray for them, but, but God really, really probably won't save them. They're too comfortable in the life that they live. Or maybe they're, they're so anti-church or so anti-God that they would never believe. Or maybe they're just too normal. They're just normal scousers. And, and why would a scouser come to know and love Jesus? He's too rough around the edges. 
And what we see next in Acts chapter 16 shows us how wrong we are to think like that. In Philippi, there was no sign of Christianity. But when we speak and when we show the power of the gospel, the church is built. And I want to fuel us with faith this morning, folks, that those people that we've been praying for by the power of God can be saved. Let me introduce you to the first three converts that we see in Philippi. First, you see in verse 11, this lady, Lydia. So, so she is a seller of purple cloth, Luke tells us. She is a businesswoman and she has an intellect. She has wealth. She's from Asia. She knows about God, but she's not yet been changed by God. And as Paul lands, and as they land there, there's no synagogue for them to go to. That's usually what Paul would do. And so he just tries to find some people who are interested in God. And there's this group of ladies who are sitting by the river, just trying to work through through some scriptures, trying to understand who God is. And so Paul opens the scriptures with them. Their heart, and Lydia's heart in particular, is opened. And their interest, their, their understanding of God moves from facts to faith. The glory of the gospel undoubtedly is unveiled to them as Paul shares Jesus with Lydia and she is saved and the rest of her family. There is instant transformation for her and in recognition of the change that she has received, she is baptized to show the, the power of the gospel in her life that she has been raised from death into life. Folks, I want us to see she starts the day as an unbeliever and by the end of the day, she is a disciple. We should be praying for that every Sunday as we gather that people would come in here as unbelievers and leave as those who are following Jesus. That is the power of the gospel. That is what the gospel can do. Lydia invites Paul and his friends to stay in her house. And they use her house as a bit of a base for the church. And then each day they go back to this place of prayer by the river to share with others the gospel. And one day as they're walking towards the river, this this girl, a little girl, starts shouting out. And she shouts this, These men, verse 17, are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Luke tells us this girl was possessed by a demon. And she was being used as a slave and her owners were using her as a bit of a fortune teller. So people will come and pay them and this girl would tell them their fortunes. She would tell the future for them. They were abusing this girl. And she's coming and Paul's there trying to share the gospel. And she's shouting over him, kind of blocking out his message, saying, these are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now we hear that and we think, that sounds pretty good. Like, that's a good message that she's preaching. Maybe Paul should just kind of step aside and let this young lady preach. Braxley, if you read a, a different translation, which is closer to how it was originally spoken, what she actually says is this. He's proclaiming to you a way of salvation. See the subtle difference? Not the way of salvation, our way of salvation. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. The only way. Now, this girl here, she is not like Lydia. It doesn't seem like she has an academic background. She doesn't have wealth. She doesn't really know truth about God. And in fact, if there is a demon working in her, she is anti-Christ. What does Paul do with her? In verse 18, he appeals to the power of Jesus and says this, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, speaking to the demon. And it came out of her that very hour. The cross of Jesus Christ, all the forces that stand against him are defeated. And, and Paul stands on that authority. 
And immediately the girl is released of this demonic power. And we've, we've got to assume that she's saved as well. Folks, that is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then a problem happens. This girl, because she was owned by these uh, uh, people who were using her as a slave, she stops telling fortunes, she stops working for them, and their income stops. And they become angry. And so they drag Paul and his friends before the courts, and the indictment against them, listen to this in verse 20, is this. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Within days of landing in Philippi, these guys are causing consternation. They're causing a disturbance in the city. And can I just say, I love that. I love that they are only a few days in and the gospel is causing holy disruption in the city. They are advocating a way of life that rubs up against the way that Rome says you should live. That is what the gospel does. It tells us to live like Jesus. And to live like Jesus is countercultural, And the authorities in Rome do not like it and they want to shut it down. And so they take Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy and they beat them up. And in verse 22, look down, Luke says, they inflicted many blows upon them. Like this is severe. This isn't just them getting pushed around a little bit. They get tortured by the authorities. They're thrown into prison and then they're put in stocks. Now, for us, when we think of stocks, we think of um, um, kind of like a medieval bit of a show. You kind of put, you know, we used to have these in schools. Anyone remember that? Um, and not as a form of torture, but as a bit of a game. You put your hands in, you put your feet in, and you just you wouldn't be able to move. That isn't what stocks were. What they would do to you in the first century is they would contort your body into a, into a shape where you were just in agony. And then you, they would clamp you down so you couldn't move. And you stayed in that position. In agony, they'd already been beaten up with sticks. And now they're placed into stocks and they're in prison. Let me kind of retell the story from this point as I would, would do it. I'm in prison, proclaiming the gospel. I've been beaten up. I'm in pain. I'm in agony. Do you know what I'd do? I'd say, do you know what, guys? We've done a great job. Three converts, a few days in. Let's cut our losses. Head back to Turkey. And this time, let's go Right. Let's not go left. Let's not go to Europe. Let's go the easy way. But that isn't what they do. See, see, I would do that because in my weakness, many times I am unconvinced of the power of the gospel to save and the growth of the church of Christ being the primary need for my city. I'm unconvinced of that many times. I'm weak to think that that is what this city needs more than anything else. And so my temptation would be to walk away, but look at what actually happens. They are thrown into prison. They're they're sitting there in agony. And in verse 25, what does Luke say? They start to sing. They start to sing at midnight. Do you know what I do at midnight? I am fast asleep at midnight. They were singing. Singing Christian hymns. And they start to pray. And they pray out loud so that everyone can hear. For these guys, the job is not finished. They are not finished. The work is not done and so they carry on praising and worshipping Jesus. And as they are praying, an earthquake happens, which isn't uncommon for that part of the world around Greece and Turkey. There's often earthquakes, but the timing of this earthquake is sovereignly perfect. An earthquake happens, the, the, uh, the cell doors of the jail fling open 
and their stocks become loose. There's a jailer who's standing outside and there must have been kind of clouds of dust around. He can't see what's going on. His immediate reaction is they've gone, they've escaped. And so he takes out his sword and draws it, about to kill himself, thinking all the prisoners have gone. And then Paul shouts out, wait, we're still here. And he can't believe it. Why would they still be there? Why wouldn't they run away? The jailer turns to Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul replies, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so the jailer takes Paul and his friends, takes him back to his house, cleans up his wounds, gives him some food, listens to to Paul uh, uh, teach uh, the truths of the gospel to him. And within hours, Luke says, he is converted with his family. And like Lydia, they are baptized. Folks, that is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. An upper class businesswoman a demon-possessed girl and a working-class jailer, these folks would never fellowship with each other. They would never be seen in the same room as each other. But the gospel changes them and brings them all together and a church is born in Philippi. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus. Ten years later, if you flick back with me now to the book of Philippians, ten years later, this church has grown. It's established as leaders in place. We see that in the first couple of verses. There's been fruitful multiplication numerically and spiritually too. The church in Philippi had a reputation. They were known for being radically generous. They were known for having a genuine love for the church and a genuine love specifically for Paul. So Paul writes them this letter. He's writing from jail, probably while he's imprisoned in Ephesus. That's going to be an important feature through this letter, him writing while he's in chains. And he writes predominantly to address three main issues. An issue of internal disunity, uh, issues of external opposition, and he wants them to set their focus towards the return of Jesus. And really in all of that, Paul is answering this question. How can a Christian live well in a world of disunity, opposition, and with the reality of the end of all things approaching? How can we live well, folks? How do Christians live well? And the answer Paul gives is this. What we need more than anything is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. You're going to see that right the way through the letter. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. This letter is about Jesus. Paul wants to draw our attention towards him and he wants us to live lives which are changed to be like him. So how do I just kind of wrap up this little bit here this morning? I just want us to look quickly at these first two verses. Just to see right from the start how adamant and how intense Paul is that we see Jesus. That we recognise him, that we see him as more important than anything else. Let me read these first two verses of chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to see in this letter Paul's love for the church, a great affection for the church and his desire for the church to grow. But, but again, what do we see is primary. In these first two verses, what is primary? Three times he says, Jesus. It's Christ Jesus that is primary for Paul as he writes to Philippi. It's Christ Jesus that he wants them to see and to, and to grow into. So first off, we see Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. 
He's reminding them of his, his authority and rights. And he, he's an apostle. He's able to write to them and tell them how to live. But how does he phrase himself? He says, we are servants. Some of you will have a little footnote on that word servant. It's the Greek word doulos, which is actually translated slave. Paul is saying, we are slaves of Christ Jesus. Yes, he is an apostle. But he wants them to know that he is a slave to Jesus. Now, when we think of slavery, we might think of, of maybe the slavery back in Paul's time, in, in kind of Roman times, or, or even think of modern day slavery. Uh, either way, wh- whatever you think slavery, the condition of those who are enslaved is dictated by their master. And in those forms of slavery, their, their masters are wicked. And so the slavery that they live under is difficult. It's oppressive. It's harsh. But Paul says he is a, a servant. He is a slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus is his master. And so his life looks entirely different. It's this idea of submitting to someone else. And, and I just want to say that if we're honest, that is, that is the opposite of the way that our world tells us to live. You don't submit to someone else. You are, you are your own God. And actually other people are there to serve you. That's how our world tells us to live. Paul says, no, I am a slave. I am a slave to Jesus. Because he is his master and he is a good master. The slavery that Paul talks about here is a life of of real freedom. It's a life of living how he was created to live. It's a life where he is cared for by his master. He's protected by his master. He is nourished by the one who owns him. And I want to encourage us by the end of this book, when we get to the end of chapter four, we will be hard pressed to look on at Paul and say, that is not a, that is, that's not a life that I want. By the end of this letter, I'm sure and I hope that all of us will say, that is the life that I want. I want to live like that. I want to give my life like Paul gives his life. That true life, the true submission to, 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 to someone that Paul shows us here only comes when we submit to Christ Jesus. He's of first importance to Paul and Timothy. They call themselves his slaves and they know that Jesus is primary to the church in Philippi. So what he says next, he says this to all the saints in Christ Jesus. They are slaves in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, you are saints in Christ Jesus. Saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Paul is saying this is who you are. You are saints. Christian, you are a saint. You are holy. And it's not just that we have been made holy. Being a saint is someone who's been made holy, but someone who's been called to live holy, to live good ways, to to live righteously, to live holy ways in the power of the gospel. That is who Paul is saying that they are. Back in the first century, the, the name Christian was actually given as a bit of a derogatory term for Christians. They were called little Christs because they tried to live like Jesus. Little Christs, Christians. That is what Paul is saying they are. You are saints, called to be holy, called to live like Jesus. And let me just say, that, like for some of us, like if you've got a family who have been Christians, maybe a few generations above your grandparents, I saw this a little bit in, in my parents. We used to look back at the way that they lived and laugh a little bit because they would try and, and live holy lives. And some of them took it to an extreme. So they'd say, you're not allowed to go to the cinema. 
You can't go out to discos. You can't dance. You're only allowed to watch the telly Monday to Saturday because for some reason on Sunday you become holy and impure when you put the telly on. That's, that's the things they kind of used, used to say. In fact, I remember uh, wearing my Sunday best to school. Like mom and dad used to dress me and my brother up in the same matching I think it was curtains they, they kind of cut these things out of. But we, we were dressed up smart. My dad would wear his suits. And we kind of look back at that a little bit and we laugh. But actually, at least they look different. At least these people look different in the culture and the society that they lived in. At least they were trying to, to seek lives which were separate to the world around them. Whereas how often do we just blend in? How often do we just look like everyone else? Because we're not living holy lives, we're living worldly lives. Paul is going to drive this idea through this letter that the Christian community should look different. And, notice, they should look different in the place where they are located. Church, you are saints in Philippi. Folks, we are saints in Liverpool. We have been called to stand out somewhere. And for us, that is here in Liverpool. And Paul doesn't say, did you notice this? He doesn't say that that is where you live. Where you are living, he says, is in Christ. You are saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. We are saints in Christ Jesus who happen to be located in the city of Liverpool. As much as we physically reside here, the place where the Christian lives is in Christ Jesus. That is where we live, folks. What does that mean? Well, it means in Christ we are saved. In Christ we find security as His Spirit guides our hearts, guards our hearts. In Christ we become new people. In Christ we are given new desires. In Christ we see the sovereign work of God as good. In Christ we are given faith to see Jesus as better. In Christ we possess all that we need for the fullness of salvation, past, present, and future. And we receive all of those objective benefits, but it is also where we are spiritually we are united to christ mystically we are united to him in spirit right now so where he is is where we are and what he has is what we have jesus is of first importance to paul and timothy and he says it is of first importance that they see that they are in christ jesus the church see that they are in christ jesus and it's the same for us Living in Christ Jesus is to live differently, folks. That is how Paul starts this letter. And he wants them to be sure that that is, that is true for them. To be in Christ Jesus is to look different. And that is not easy. It is not easy to take the commands that Jesus gives and to, even just in this letter, to see what Paul tells us to live and to walk in that. It is not easy. Which is why he ends with what he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the grace that comes from God and the peace that comes from God that enables us to live lives like Jesus. We cannot do it without it. It is only through the grace and peace that comes from God that we are able to live like him. It is how Paul starts his letter and ends his letter. He starts by calling them into the grace and peace from God. And if you've read some of Paul's letters, you'll know that this is a familiar greeting. Paul often writes grace and peace. And it was a clever way of him addressing uh, just the whole of the church. Grace was a Greek word, charis. It's, um, it, it's a word that would have been familiar to the Gentile believers. Peace was a Hebrew word, shalom, familiar to the Jewish Christians. And he's greeting the whole of the church 
Not just, not just peace, not just grace, but, but I want you all to know that you've received from God. And we might kind of use it as a throwaway. Johnny uses it sometimes and we love it, but we laugh sometimes. Grace and peace, peace we kind of use it just as a bit of a, a throwaway comment. But, but for Paul to say grace and peace was to, to share the gospel with you, the fullness of the gospel. Grace, the undeserved, unmerited saving work of God. Peace. What God has done through his son, Christ Jesus, in making us right with God and with each other. Grace and peace were the gospel to Paul. And he is extending the gospel to the saints in Philippi because that is what they need. And we need to see. When we ask ourselves ourselves the question, how do we live as Christians well? How do we live good lives? How do we live like Jesus in the world, in the city that we have been placed in? The answer is Jesus submitting to him, living like him and receiving the gospel from him. We are only able to live like Jesus by the grace of God and through the peace of God. The beginnings of this church should convince us folks that the gospel is not powerless. The gospel is the power of God. It is the power of God to bring salvation to those who do not believe and it is the power of God to bring change in our lives. So here's what I want us to do just for two minutes. On your table, Andy's already filled his with notes. I've noticed, but maybe you can get another card. You'll have a black and white card and a pen, a Liberty card. And if you um, prefer, you could just use a notes page on your phone. Here's what I'd love us to do as a point of application. Just take two minutes. Take one of those minutes just to think and to list out the people who are in your life that you desperately want to have a relationship with Jesus. If you're not a believer listening to, to us this morning, maybe you can just write me. Maybe it's you that needs to be in a relationship with Jesus. Who is it in your life that you desperately want to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be saved by it? Like Lydia and her family, like the slave girl, like the jailer and his family, who is it? And then just spend another minute thinking, where is it that I want to mature? Where is it? What aspect of my life and my character is not like Jesus? Where do I want to grow to be more like him? Where do I want to to see the transforming, changing power of the gospel at work in my life over the next 10 weeks? Write it down. It might be that you're, you're, you're angry. It might be that you're impatient. It might be that you're out of touch with your affections, with, with those around you. What is it? What is it that you want to grow into? What is it that you want to mature into in your life to be more like Jesus? Because that is why Paul writes this letter. To show us the power of the gospel to save and the power of the gospel to change. So just take a couple of minutes. If you're at home, do this on your phone. If you're here, just write these things down. Tuck them into your Bible. Put them on your phone. What I want us to do is in 10 weeks time, look back and see what God has done. So we rely on his power now bring about the change in our lives and the lives around us that we desperately want to see. So just, just do that for a couple of minutes. And then when we're done, I'll pray for us. And Matt, uh, Elizabeth and Mark will come up and lead us through a couple of songs.